Well, good evening again. My name is Jim Partridge, if you don't know me. And I am one of the elders uh, here at City, and very privileged and glad to be here with you tonight. Uh, as John said, we are back in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I think we're going to be in this probably until about mid-March. Um, so we will continue to uh, preach on themes related to these catechism questions using texts of the Bible that relate to that. Um, it just so happens that our, our text tonight kind of coincide with a uh, book that uh, I've been reading and many in our church have been reading. Perhaps you've seen this orange tome in our uh, book table. It's called The J-Curve by Paul Miller. And I'll be referencing that tonight because really this book is all about the catechism questions that we have tonight related to our everyday lives as Christians. And so you'll be hearing a little bit more about the J-curve tonight. But let me first read our text uh, from 2 Corinthians. And um, I'm going to start actually at verse 5, so you just have verses 7 through 12 in your text, but I will be referencing um, um, before that. So I'm going to read verses 5 through 12 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is Paul writing, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let me give you the big idea of this text right up front, and I'll be referencing this again, but I think the big idea in this text is simply this. Paul is saying that a gospel-driven life for a follower of Jesus maps onto his humiliation and his exaltation. In other words, in simpler terms, dying and rising are part and parcel of the normal Christian life. So I wanted to do a little show and tell tonight. The importance of maps. This is my map box. I love maps. These are all my road maps. Maps to Georgia and North Carolina and Europe and maps of 
park trails and all that. I love maps. I really enjoy driving and taking uh, road trips, so these maps are important for me. They're important because I need to know where I'm going. I need to know what route I want to take, right? In a similar way, I was really intrigued on our plane trip to Ethiopia to follow the digital maps on the plane or our flight path from Washington. We had a direct flight to Addis Ababa, which was wonderful. Um, I felt a little bit like a kid. I kept returning to the console, checking the status of our flight. We went up the East Coast and we went up over Maine, my favorite place. We went up over uh, Eastern Canada and across the UK and down over Europe, across the Mediterranean, over Egypt, and finally to Ethiopia. Well, why am I talking about maps? It's because this text, uh, friends, I think that we just read provides a basic map of sorts or a pattern for the Christian life. And we will return to it in a few minutes. But first, I want to just point out, this is not an isolated text. There are other writings of Paul, one of which we opened our service with tonight, that follow a similar pattern, dying and rising, humiliation, exaltation. So look back in your bulletin, if you would, to our call to worship. Because the Philippians 2 passage that John opened us with and had us meditate on, this is perhaps the gold standard for illustrating uh, this pattern, humiliation and exaltation in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus. And in turn, it's the perfect biblical text to illustrate our catechism questions that we read previously. Humiliation, exaltation, dying then rising. Jesus established the pattern. He lived it out on this earth in real time and real space. Friends, he was utterly humiliated. Born into poverty. The lawgiver subjected to the law. Enduring both the miseries of this life as well as the righteous wrath of God as he took on the sin of his people, which led to his horrible abandonment on the cross, and burial in a tomb, and experiencing the power of death for a time. This was the initial life experience of the Son of God for about 33 years in Palestine in the first century A.D., culminating in a weekend of death that we will remember and celebrate about two and a half months from now. But the story, of course, was not over because he was also utterly exalted, praise God. Rising from the dead on the third day, ascending into heaven about 40 days later, and since that time, the Lord Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father, ruling, reigning, interceding for his people. And this exaltation, friends, will culminate in his return to judge the world on the last day. This, friends, is the original J-curve 
okay? The life pattern exhibited by our Lord Jesus Christ. Humiliation, then exaltation, dying and then rising. Well, let me raise at this point two problems that some might have with what I've said so far. The first is, who among you is here is really into humiliation and death? It sounds so negative. Isn't the Christian life all about life, joy, and peace? About victory over sin? This isn't just a modern problem in our culture. Paul's opponents in Corinth actually challenged his apostleship because of his suffering. Many Jews, we know, rejected the idea of a suffering Messiah. The fact is, I believe, the church has largely imbibed a prosperity gospel that has no room for suffering. We're allergic to it. We inoculate ourselves against it. And yet, as Paul tells us, this is in your additional scriptures, Philippians 1.29. This is a word to each one of us. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Friends, we need a robust theology of suffering to give us a balanced and a biblical map of the Christian life. Well, I think a second problem at this juncture is that I think we struggle to see the connection between the narrative that we've just been emphasizing of Jesus' humiliation and exaltation and our own experience in the here and now. Theologically, I'd suggest that that connection is made via the doctrine of union with Christ, which I have preached several times over the last couple of years. There's a quote in the front of the bulletin there uh, that you may want to check out by a theologian, Richard Gaffin, which I think gives a beautiful connection between the doctrine of union with Christ and the sufferings of Jesus and the church. Practically, the connection is fleshed out beautifully in Paul Miller's book, and I commend it to you. But it's also seen in our text this evening, which I'm finally coming to. Let's come back to the text, because 2 Corinthians 4 connects the experience of our Savior with our own experience through the Apostle Paul. It shows that the gospel-driven life maps onto the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. The big idea. Dying and rising are part and parcel of the normal Christian life. The original J-curve that I just mentioned, the unique J-curve of our Lord, actually spawns repeated J-curves of various types in those united by faith to him. So that we can say that disciples of Jesus daily reenact, in a sense, his dying and his rising. And let's see how the text shows us this. Look at our text. Verse 7. In verse 7, I think Paul, when he mentions this treasure, it goes back to the first two verses that I mentioned 
Uh, it specifically refers to the gospel, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this treasure is the gospel. And note that it's located where? It's located in jars of clay. That's a clear reference to human weakness. You can find descriptions in places in the Psalms and the prophets that speak of broken vessels, uh, humans as broken vessels. Look at verse 8 and 9. Paul here describes his suffering using various terms. These terms are, are really somewhat generic, and they could refer to any number of physical or emotional conditions. In verse 10, he then shows that these afflictions that he's been speaking of are to be a significant part of his life. They are a significant part of his life and witness. As his response to these things points to his life in Jesus. In other words, Paul is not defined by or stuck in his negative circumstances, but he uses them to point to Jesus. Paul's a resurrection guy. He's not a stoic sufferer. Verse 10 uh, is really an example of what Paul Miller calls the J-curve. The pattern of life in our text is then reinforced. Verse 11, Paul says essentially the same thing. Except, if you look closely there, the sense is that the pattern is regularly repeated. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. It's part, friends, of the normal Christian life. Well, then in verse 12, Paul says this, so death is at work in us, but life in you. He's completing his thought by pointing out that the substitutionary nature of love. Every act of love involves a mini death to our own agenda, our own comfort. It produces life in another. Paul's life was other-centered because he was in union with a Savior whose very life and death was the essence of substitutionary love. May we too learn that pattern. When we do, here's some of the benefits of learning the J-curve. When we do, we learn to see our circumstances, our sufferings, our sins, through the lens of the J-curve. When we do that, we'll be freed from things like cynicism. We'll be enabled to see the beauty of Jesus in hard places. And we'll find our emotions to be more balanced. When we know that we're in a J-curve, we know that dying is not the last word. Resurrection is coming. Well, this is a short meditation. I'd like to end it with both an exhortation and a story from our time in Ethiopia. Hopefully these will illustrate what I've said so far. This message I'm giving tonight was uh, kind of grew out of a devotional that I gave uh, two weeks ago tomorrow 
our first full day in Ethiopia, to the, uh, the staff that we had the privilege of serving uh, next to. There's a missionary, Andrew Warren, who will actually be, uh, he's been to our church uh, last spring, and he's going to be coming back uh, next month, Lord willing, to help us debrief with the congregation. He's a wonderful man, and he has assembled a, a staff of wonderful, deeply uh, spiritual Christian Ethiopian friends who we got to know when we were there. So the ACTS staff was there. Our missions team was there. Uh, there's a church planter also who was there. And they have devotions every Monday morning before they begin their work. It was a glorious time. They sang a hymn in Amharic, which is the, the uh, wonderful language in Ethiopia. It's a combination of Hebrew and Arabic. It's, it's just, it sounds like they're um, singing even when they're talking. The, the language is just beautiful. Anyway, I ended my exhortation from about the J-curve with this challenge to everyone. And it's this. And this challenge is for you too. If you belong to Jesus, you are united to him in his death and resurrection. His life of love led him into the mess of life in a fallen world. He descended into the world of the broken, the sick, and the hurting on a mission that would lead him ultimately to death on a cross. And yet he trusted in his father who would raise him from the dead. Will you follow the J-curve today and every day this week? I was speaking to the staff Monday morning. Dying and rising with Jesus. Well, little did I know that about two hours after giving that devotional, I would be in the home of a man. I, my wife, Tracy, and I are physical therapists, if you don't know, and uh, that was part of our reason for going. And Trace and I both did home visits separately in different teams. And um, I went to the home of Kabui. Uh, getting to Kabui's home was a bit of a struggle. Uh, we had to go up about a 45 degree angle, uh, hiking up into the hills of his neighborhood, Suki. And uh, since Otis is at about 8,000 feet of, of uh, elevation, I was uh, sucking air a little bit when we got up there. But I got to the home of Kabui, and here I found a man living in a home, a two-room home, probably no bigger than about two-thirds of the stage was the entire square footage of their home. Kabui uh, had a stroke about eight years ago, and uh, they had us going to people who had some sort of you know, disability. They wanted our input on how we might be able to help them. This man was totally paralyzed on his left side. He was sitting on a cot, uh, kind of a wooden cot that was only eight inches off the ground. His complaint was that his left side hurt a little bit. And what I gathered from the translation with the nurse who was with me, um, Kabui had not been out of this room in eight years since his stroke. He had been uh, confined to this bed, essentially. He had been having to use a bedpan, um, and yet Kabui um, was upbeat. He was glad that we were there. So I 
went into my little physical therapy evaluation. Uh, I was out of my comfort zone because I'm a, really an orthopedic therapist and I don't treat people with stroke patients. I don't treat those types of problems very often, but I used to do home care, so I put my home care hat back on and tried to think, how could we help this man? Um, I have to admit, so we were able to get him into a chair, I was able to assess what his problems were, but as I left, I felt a bit deflated because I just felt, how can we help this man? This man has been like this for eight years. Uh, he can't get any therapy. It's not available there. Uh, the ACT staff makes regular visits, but they can't actually do on-site care. I came away hoping that we could do something, but I felt a little bit deflated. I shared the story with, uh, with Tracy later that day, and then the next day I mentioned it to some of the staff, and they started to ask some questions. What do you need? Tell us what, what you need, and we'll, we'll do it. I said, well, if we could get him into a chair, maybe he could have a bedside commode, and if we could raise the bed, you know, maybe we could even get him into a, a wheelchair. They had had a wheelchair donated that was in the in the house, but they had not been able to get him into it. So I was still feeling a little like this just will not happen. Well, here's what happened. Tuesday of that week, um, there was donations made by a clinic in Otis that was closing, another medical clinic. And we found out on Wednesday that among other items, there was a bedside commode that had been donated. And then the staff, as they were talking about it, said, we can get some stuff to raise the, that bed, um, and we want you and your wife to go back out to see Kabui and see what you can do for them. So on Thursday afternoon, we were transported once again to the Suki neighborhood uh, with a social worker, a nurse, a patient advocate, my wife and I. And we went to this man's house, and uh, we were able to raise his bed up so that it would be easier to get out of that bed. We were able to get him onto his commode. And then we were able to get him into his wheelchair. And what we were able to do then was totally unexpected by Trace and I, but we were able to take this man outside into the sunshine for the first time in eight years. This was a resurrection, friends. We had, I had been in the downside of the curve thinking there's really nothing that can be done for this man. And the Lord, through a variety of circumstances, brought resurrection. It's just one example of what it means for us in Christ to be involved in the dying and the rising. I challenge all of us to look at our circumstances, the, the things that we do in our jobs, the circumstances of our lives. Let's see them through the lens of the J-curve. I'd like to end just by reading again verses 11 and 12 of our text. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Would you pray with me?